Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. This season, we are posting the recordings and Q&A from our HBG Bible Talks event in 2022 with Tim Bunting of West Harlem, New York, titled, How We Got the Bible. So again, we've been talking uh, some about um, just a concept we're looking at. Can we trust that our Bibles today are accurate to the original message? Talked a little bit about the original documents, um, their authorship dates, uh, the materials used to on which they were recorded and, and transmitted through generations. Uh, we talked about the manuscripts, why we need to know information about the manuscripts and what information can be known about the manuscripts. And also, based off of what we have, you know, we definitely have uh, access to a reliable text, uh, given all the different translations and all the different uh, manuscripts in the original languages, but now it's time to get down to business and really talk actual textual criticism and how we can discern what the original reading should be in uh, each verse by verse. Um, The truth is that in the New Testament text, there are lots of variant readings. Variant reading is One manuscript in this particular verse says, pray to our God, and the other manuscript might say, pray to our Lord. You'll have X amount that say it one way, X amount that say it the other way, maybe less that say it a whole third way. But these are two variant readings. And this is a good example of what a variant is. This is the kinds of differences you're going to come across. You know, difference in one word might be a synonym or interchangeable, but it's a different word. And um, we need to consider these as variant readings. We might say, oh, you know, an error or something. But as soon as you say an error, you're indicating that, well, this one's wrong and the other one is right. We don't don't know that. It's not that one's right and one's wrong. It's just just that they're different. It's a variant, and you got to figure out which one's the real deal. You've been watching, you know, that Disney Channel, the Loki, Loki series, variant is a word that you're familiar with, where there's a branching off of the original, but which one's the branch and which one is the original is kind of what we're talking about here. Um, so yeah, so lots of variants. And when we say lots of variants, we mean lots of variants. And there's, there's a number on the board, different scholars throw out vastly different numbers of variants found in the New Testament, anywhere between 150 to 500,000. That sounds like a lot of variants. And based off of that, there's no way our New Testament can be trustworthy. If there's that much variation in the text, then how can we trust the text? How can we know that what we have today is accurate? Um, Well, we need to put this number in proper context. And, and know the reality of what this number means, uh, which we'll look at that as we go through it. It's kind of like if I say, oh, we've got over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, and I give the impression that they're all complete New Testaments from like 200 AD. Oh, 5,000 manuscripts. I need to mention some are scraps. You know, some are much, much later, 13th century. That's, that's a part of understanding the context of that number. Same thing with, with this number on the board. Okay, there's this many, there's this many variations, but what does this number actually even mean? We'll see very quickly that's not quite as daunting of a, of a number as it might seem at first. Um, now, when you look at variants and variant readings, there's two ways that you can organize the variant readings. 
And this is not two, two types of variant readings or two categories of variant readings, but rather two ways, two different ways to organize all of the readings. Uh, I might say the book of 1 Corinthians, Stephen says book of 1 Corinthians. This is my outline. Well, here's Stephen's outline. Well, they're our own, our, our each unique outline of the same material. That's what we're talking about here. So there is the um, perspective of scribal variants, looking at these, organizing these variants from the perspective of the scribe or the scribal process. Or there's the 21st century perspective, looking or categorizing these variants from what they mean to us today. Here we are looking back at them, how we organize them. So two different ways to organize or think about them. We'll talk about that. In terms of scribal variants, this is how you classify or organize or categorize the, the, the variant readings under this um, perspective of scribal variants. First, there are unintentional errors. Uh, there's an error or a variant that's a result of an error orthographical error. Orthographical error means handwriting mistakes. So you're talking about like my, you know, typos essentially. So you can skip a word. You ever done that when you're writing something and then you're a little bit ahead in your thoughts and then you skip a word or two completely. You go back and read it like, well, that don't make any sense. Right? So that would happen in the scribal process. You might skip a whole line. Again, if you've got all caps and no spaces, sometimes you could Go back over here. We, we skip lines when we read, but what if it some way weirdly connects with the next word on that line, and then you keep going, and you go back and say, oh, skip the line. Don't tell the boss. We're going to keep going. <laughs> um, you ever read and repeat a line, right? Now, but you're writing. How could you do that while you're writing? Well, again, this would be a very meticulous writing, you know, and you kind of be – I don't know if you'd be in the zone. You're kind of um, in a trance almost as you meticulously copy all this. And you're not going to be quite as keen what you're actually doing necessarily every step of the way. So there's repeated lines, something that happens a lot, or even repeated words. Uh, this one's cute. You can Sometimes there are incorrectly divided words. And this would be going from unsealed to minuscule. Unsealed, there's no spaces. And so the minuscule scry, as he's transforming it into minuscule text, he could write, God is nowhere, or he could write, God is now here, right? And so some of these uh, differences would come because of that. So are we, are, we, are we worried about this too much? Uh, you, yeah, you, we know how to know the difference between these kinds of uh, varying readings. A lot of this is going to be disregarded. Uh, oh, there's also mistaking one word for another. It says effect, you write effect, right? That can happen. So this first type of variant reading you find is, is pretty harmless. You know, errors happen in the scribal practice. If you have however many hundred manuscripts you're looking at and one skips a line, you say, well, all the other ones have this line. That guy probably just skipped a line, so not, not a big deal. Um, but then there are um, what is called intentional errors. And this sounds a little bit worse. Intentional error. Why would someone intentionally change or alter the New Testament text that they were writing? Well, in most situations, these would be deliberate corrections. Right? As a scribe is copying the text, he would be tempted to, to edit the text, you know, update the style or the grammar. You imagine if at the end of, is it John 7, 
or something, I forget what chapter it is now, um, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, the scribe says, well, that's a grammatical error there. Before Abraham was, I was, before, you know, he might come in and correct that to update the grammar to make it better, but that's, we're not looking for the scribes to improve the style of grammar, but there's um, corrections like that. Uh, sometimes there are corrections of errors, what they would perceive as an error. A good example of that is this. Mark 12, it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, if you're pretty familiar with the Bible, you might see a complication in this text. Because who's the prophet that's mentioned? Isaiah. Well, who's the prophet that is quoted? Well, it's Isaiah. And it's Malachi, right? But the writing says, the prophet Isaiah said this, but Malachi said it too. So what did some scribes do? Erase, as the prophets said, and they fixed it. There's multiple prophets quoted, so the scribe fixes it by writing prophets instead of Isaiah. So an intentional correction of the text that is what? Well, it's a variant, potentially, from what it actually originally said. So that happens. Um, harmonization of text. These are going to be the kind of variants that we are the most <laughs> familiar with in our traditional English uh, translations, King James, New King James. There's a lot of harmonization of the text. In modern translations, NASB is going to put a lot of these harmonizations in brackets because they're going to say, well, I wasn't part of the original, even though you're used to seeing that in our English translations. A harmonization is when the scribes will try to make parallel texts more similar. So in Matthew 20, Jesus is blasting the Pharisees pretty systematically, bullet point by bullet point. And, you know, the scribe would be writing this section, and he says, man, there's something similar that Mark said where he talks about the, the Pharisees devouring widows' houses and making these long, pretentious prayers. That belongs in Matthew 23, too. So then they'll model that text and kind of insert it in Matthew 23 and kind of harmonize the text. That's a scribal inclination as well. Um, and finally, there, are, are, there can also be doctrinal alterations, correcting the text to make it fit your beliefs or support your beliefs better. Right? That's the one that makes us a little bit uncomfortable because if there are a lot of doctrinal alterations of the text, so that means we can no longer trust the text itself. If people are going in and manipulating and changing the, the message of the Bible to conform what they think or what they wanted to say, well, that's when we're in dangerous territory. We can no longer trust the message. Fortunately, though, <coughs> it becomes very clear to us that's it's not, it's not what's going on. Uh, there was not enough power that individuals or groups had to really successfully do that. There was, we're going to make this point later, there was, there was way too many New Testament documents. If you started changing it, you'd be like, what version you got? <laughs> Where'd that come from? But a pretty uh, well-known one might be what we find here in 1 John 5, or 1 John uh, 5, 7, 8, the uh, New American Standard would say, these are three that testify, spirit, water, and the blood. They are in agreement. Where if you have a King James or a New King James, there are three that bear witness, testify, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. Now, that's a substantially different rendering of that verse. It's not the same. That's not saying the same thing at all. 
And this verse here really kind of conveniently supports this three-in-one Trinitarian Yahweh concept, right? It's kind of nice with this weird idea of how do we understand the divinity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and so forth. Walls right here. Three are one. Boom, there you go. Question is, is that what the original actually said? Or did the original read differently? We'll talk about that one uh, a little bit later. So, but but these kinds of variants near, almost don't exist. Uh, and in this case, when they do, it becomes very clear what the original reading should be. Um, so these are kind of variants that we're going to take a look at in a second here. Um, let's see, what am I, what am I forgetting? I hope, hope that makes sense. We'll kind of double back a little bit. Now, the second perspective, the second way we can categorize or look at or think of these variant readings is as follows. It's from our 21st uh, century perspective. How, how, how do these affect me? How should I think of these? Well, first category are trivial variants of no consequence. So it's a variation in the text that is trivial. A misspelled word is trivial. A skipped line is trivial. A repeated word is trivial. And it doesn't have any consequence on how we understand the text. When you're doing your textual criticism, that variation doesn't even go through your filter of what's it really say. <laughs> you know what it says. The, the, the variation has no effect on the meaning, and it has very little support that it's easily disregarded, so we move on. The vast, vast, vast majority of variant readings in Scripture that make up this 150, some odd thousand, this is what we're talking about these trivial variants of no consequence. Then there are substantial variants of no consequence. We're not talking about misspelled word, we're talking about changed, or added words or omitted words or altered words. You know, we, we looked at Acts 8.37, there's a whole verse, the whole meaning behind it. So how can you have a substantial variation, but it still be of no consequence? Well, because sometimes variants, although they're substantial, are so weakly attested that, you don't, that we don't need to take them seriously. Okay, the, you know, Codex Bezia says this thing here. It's the only manuscript we have that says that. So it's a, it's a substantial difference, but we don't need to take that seriously because there's no real support for that variant reading. So in both these first two categories, it doesn't really impact our modern translations, our understanding of the text. We're not really in dangerous territory there. That makes sense? Okay, but then there are... There is this third category, substantial variants that are of consequence. Uh, and this is this is the category that we're going to care about the most, that scholars are going to care about the most. But we've gone from hundreds of thousands of variants to hundreds of variants, right? So now, now we're in a more uh, manageable number. So you've got, you know, a substantial variation, different word or different, you know, phrasing or the name or so forth. And you've got enough evidence on either side to make you stop and say, hmm, which one is it? In some cases, it becomes pretty quick. Okay, this, this is very likely the original reading. Other cases, it still might end up a bit of a toss-up. But amongst these substantial variations of consequence, here is what the majority of the variants are going to be like. I showed you this book before, this little guy here, which... Uh, you know, it, it tells me about all the different papyri and information about them. And that's really nice. It goes through and says, okay, here are all the relevant texts 
So these papyri impact texture, okay? So if you go through all this, all the information from these papyri, how are they going to impact the text potentially? So it gives up a number of variations that would be attested for or against by these papyri. And I just took top of the list and went down a few. One variant, variant is in the genealogy of Jesus, begot, and Jesse begot David, or another variant would say, Jesse begot the kid. That's a substantial variation of consequence. Matthew 121, then she will bring forth a son, or then she will bring forth to you a son. Okay? Or Matthew 121, he will save the world, or he will save his people. Matthew 122, through Isaiah the prophet, or through the mouth of Isaiah the prophet, or through the prophet, I'm not sure why, or just, just through the prophet of Isaiah. So these are the substantial variants of consequence that scholars go through one by one. And you can see, this is, this is all Matthew. This is all Matthew 1. And these things, they, they come up a lot. Right? But, but these are the kind of decisions that these scholars are making and comparing back and forth with all the many manuscripts that we have. That makes sense? But again, this, this, is, this, is, this is what it looks like. Um, so is, is this threatening our ability to understand the text or, or to know the message was transmitted clearly? And it's not that all of these are big question marks and uncertain. It's just they'll impact um, you know, the research done to determine which variation there might be. So let's talk about some more um, significant variants, um, some, some bigger cases. And some of these are bigger for us as English speakers, because these are variants that got included in the traditional English text, um, but not necessarily for very good reason, because some of these variants are not very well attested. So we talked about Acts 8, uh, verse 37 here in our previous message, um, where Philip says, you believe all your heart, you can be baptized. Um, but we're going to look at this one specifically and see that this does not have very good support. Um, it is very, very easy to know that this was not part of the original text. And so this very substantial variant reading, we can pretty quickly come to a very certain conclusion about it and move on. But that, that's a pretty good one. Um, then there's the one we mentioned here, 1 John 5, through, uh, 5, 7 through 8. This is the same category as Acts chapter 8, 37. Now, this is a major, major, major difference. Oh, man, what are you going to do? But then when you actually look at the evidence of what manuscripts support the omission or versus what manuscripts support that reading, it's very, very one-sided. You say, okay, we, we know what the original said. But two big, big variants. I'm going to tell you, these are the two biggest variants you can tell. That's a fat load of text right there. And then here in Mark 16, these are the two biggest, most, most, most substantial variant readings. And these are absolutely unique. You're not going to find a paragraph of text in the New Testament, that's up for question, except for these two right here. And so you might be familiar with, with this one being a variant reading. So this is a story of the adulterous woman who was brought before Jesus. Jesus says, he who's without sin casts the first stone. So does this story belong here in John or not? Well, you start looking at the evidence, and you find a lot of manuscripts that don't have it there at all. You find some respectable manuscripts that do have it. You find other manus respectable manuscripts 
that have it back in the appendix section, or they've got it at the end of Luke. So this story, it shows up more than it shows up here in John. Right? And then you start going through some of the what we're called internal evidence. And we'll see, does this story really fit here in the middle of this discussion, Jesus having with the Pharisees or not? So so this one, and again, uh, I'll just go ahead and tell you, don't, don't believe me. Uh, I'm not giving you any proof of this. To me, it seems like this is probably a, a, an accurate tradition, uh, something that actually happened that was spread orally and began to be written down and then was included. I, I, my conclusion is this very probably most likely was not here in the book of John. And it probably was not in the original text of the New Testament. But I think how much it is attested in all these different manuscripts in different places, it probably actually happened uh, and was passed on orally and then written down. So, but that, so that's a big question mark for me. So, okay, so that, that's a pretty big variant that we should be aware of. More significant than that, though, this is the, the, the biggest or most significant variant reading you're going to find in all, of, all the Bible, really. The last part of Mark 16, uh, verses 9 through 20. Uh, this, of course, is the passage that, passage that we say, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Um, but this whole section here is, is, is uncertain. And it's got several layers. There's one section that's uncertain, and there's another one that goes beyond that, and one more beyond that. And the farther down you get, the more unlikely to the original they become. So what do we do with this? And again, you can do a lot of study, and this one ends... With, with a pretty big question mark. It's really kind of hard to know what, what to do about this. Um, and again, my kind of conclusion, what seems to make sense to me is, I feel like we don't actually have the proper ending of the Book of Mark. It seems like maybe very early on, this very last section of Mark might have escaped us, damaged or, or whatever. And then scribes come back in and do their best to recreate what was there. And so you've got very different versions just of this last section here, Mark. So I mentioned before, Mark doesn't end, you know, at verse 8, because that's a weird place for the text. It obviously will go on beyond that. But then there's so much variety of what goes on beyond that, getting more and more variety as you go. So my conclusion is that we might not know exactly what the original text said, but then these are attempts at faithfully recreating what was originally written. So I think some of the met text here with a little bit of so it was a little bit of caution. Um, for instance, my support of baptism, I'm going to teach that from other passages rather than this one, um, which I'm very comfortable doing. Obviously, you can very easily support that doctrine elsewhere, which that's a good time to say this. People, you might hear people say, well, there's, there's no variant reading in Scripture that changes or affects doctrine. And I think at the end of the day, I think that's true. Um, there is no variant reading that is so significant. You're either going to believe this doctrine or believe that doctrine. But that's not to say that there are variant readings or passages that affect doctrine. But the passages that they affect, you, you support this doctrine from multiple places. And so this variant here doesn't determine what your doctrinal conclusion would be. Um, so, yes, there are variants. The vast, vast, vast majority of the variants are inconsequential, um, typos and so forth, or substantial variations that are either pretty easy to figure out or 
don't ultimately make a difference uh, in the meaning of the message. And then you've got these two that are absolutely in their own category. Uh, this one especially as being, well, this is, this is a portion of text that's hard to know exactly what to do with. Now, someone might be very convinced uh, about this text being yes or no and have good reason for that. Um, I'm, I'm leaving a little, a little bit ambiguous for myself. But. So, so that's, that's something to think about. And that's why we need to study this. We need to think about it. There's things for us to consider. And when the skeptic or your neighbor throws some stuff out, you know about, hmm, there's some question marks here. He doesn't know that. Now, if he comes, you say, well, you can't even trust the ending of Mark 16. He said, oh, wow, this guy, okay, this guy's done some reading, good for him. And then you begin your conversation with them in a more educated level. But this, this is stuff we need to know about. And most people who are dismissing the Bible because it can't be trusted, it's not because of this, right? And those of us who believe in the Bible, our faith does not depend complete, completely on this, you know? Uh, we can still trust in the inspiration of the message, the, the accuracy of the message, the power of the message, realizing there are some real question marks on uh, a few sections here. Does that kind of make sense? All right. If you have questions on that, then you can ask me the question and answer. That, that, that's a pretty pretty challenging section for us, but it's good for us to know about that. All right. Um, all right. Let's keep going here then. I forgot I have to do two lessons in this session here. Um, okay. But let's kind of put things again back in proper perspective here. Now, we mentioned the 150 to 500,000 variants. Now, let me tell you how they get to that number. <clears throat> if there are 100 manuscripts that say our God and 1,000 manuscripts that say our Lord, that's 1,100 variants. <laughs> right, it's one variant for every single manuscript. So they add up pretty quickly when, you, when you've got 5,000 plus Greek manuscripts, which remember, like the reason we've got so much vari variation in the text is because we have so many manuscripts. If we had like three manuscripts, there would be a lot less variant readings. But we have so many variant readings because we have the blessing of having so many manuscripts. So don't forget about that. And wouldn't we rather have a lot of manuscripts with more varying readings than a very few manuscripts that are very uniform? Because the existence of variation means we can actually see and monitor changes and alterations made in the text. You know, if someone's at work and they make a mistake and they cover it up, or don't tell the company, that mistake is going to keep existing and happening and affecting things down the road. But if you see a mistake, then you can, you can do something about it. Because we have so many different manuscripts, we can see these things as they're coming about and be able to monitor and make our own decisions and educated uh, choices about that. Because at the end of the day, a uniform text does not mean necessarily that it is an accurate text. Because you can eliminate all other types of texts, right? Um, you know, in, in the, the writing of the Quran, people came up to the elders and they chose which stories of Muhammad were true and they made their uniform text and anything that was different than that would be eliminated. Um, but does that mean that this was an accurate process? Well, if you leave it up to, you know, a group effort, 
people working and doing independently, different beliefs, different agendas, and so forth. And here we all, we're all doing our own thing. And we get to sit back and look at all of it. And we can monitor and see that we're not limited to one single text that we can't verify. We can't compare with anything. There's all these changes here, but I can't tell you that they, they were changes because I've got nothing to compare it to. But we have all these manuscripts that we can compare with and we can see these things as they've happened. Um, so the truth is the existence of variant readings as, in, uh, as opposites might seem is really beneficial to the um, accuracy of the text and our trust in the reliability of the text. Last thing I'll say about that is this. Because of the ubiquity of the text, as I mentioned, people could not get away commandeering the text and running with it. And I think evidence of that is this. So one of the first most powerful Christian organizations and religions was the Roman Catholic Church. Very, very powerful force. And if anybody was going to be able to commandeer and rearrange and rewrite the text to conform to their doctrines and their desires, that would have been the group that could have done it. But when I read through the New Testament, and I see all the ways that the New Testament reads differently than what the Catholic Church might practice or teach, what does that tell me? Well, they didn't change the text. <laughs> you know, it says here that you shouldn't teach the forbidding of marriage in absence of certain means. It says that's a demonic teaching. And if there's an organization that actually does teach that, I wouldn't think that they would add that part in. <laughs> I would think they want to remove that part, but if it's there, which means what? Which, which means they didn't. And so I think we can be very confident that the, the, the message of the word, the ubiquity of the word, was far more widespread than any one organization could do anything about. Um, I'm, I'm not worried at all about the Bible or biblical text being altered or changed to fit some private group's um, agenda. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. So that's pretty reassuring for us. Okay. Let's keep going here. Uh, we got 10 more minutes or so. So let's talk about the actual scientific practice of textual criticism. So we have the manuscripts, we've got the variants. Textual criticism is the careful and meticulous process of gathering and comparing evidence to determine which variant readings are the most original. We've seen this variant reading a couple of times. So which is it? Well, how do we how do we go about deciding which of these two different readings is more reliable? Well, first is an examination of what is called the external evidence. External evidence um, is, I think I Yeah, so external evidence is going to be all the information about the actual physical manuscripts themselves. You got a manuscript, you've got two things you're dealing with, the manuscript and the text. And in some ways you can take the text, put it in a Word document, that's the text. Doesn't matter, forget what is written on, this is the text. But then the manuscript itself, you know, what material is it written on? What language is it written in? Uh, where was it discovered? You know, what kind of text type is it? The nature of the manuscript is one thing that affects the, that makes up the external evidence. And then the actual words on the page separate from the manuscript is something else entirely that you can work with through um, internal evidence. So why would external evidence impact our choices on which variant readings are most reliable? Well, again, you 
to in order to determine which testimony to trust, you figure out which witness do I trust. The manuscript is the witness. You know, how old is this manuscript? Well, if it's an unsealed writing form and it's not on papyri, that means it's pretty old. So that affects how trustworthy the, um, the testimony is. Or what text type is it? It's Alexandrian, so it's a conservative and simple text type. In a lot of ways, that makes it more trustworthy. It's just sticking to the program, not elaborating or anything. Um, this one was discovered here in Macedonia. This one was discovered over here in Egypt, and they read the same. So that their testimony corroborates and works together better. So you consider the external evidence that you know about the manuscripts to figure out how much you might trust the readings found within that manuscript. Does that make sense? And we talked a lot about that uh, before in our second lesson. Um, so again, so what do you do with all the external evidence? Well, if it's, you know, if it's a reading that is attested by older manuscripts, that's more reliable. Or if it's attested by manuscripts from multiple different regions, regions more reliable. Or if it's represented by multiple text types, more reliable. Um, also, quality of witnesses is stronger than quantity of witnesses. I heard a quote that support uh, manuscripts that support variant readings should be weighed and not counted. If you just number them, well, you got 2,000 minuscules that support this, and you have like three unseals that support it. So the three that say otherwise way more than a thousand that come way later that do support it. Um, so that's kind of how you weigh the external evidence. But then we move on to internal evidence um, and what we do with internal evidence. So two types of internal evidence. One is transcriptional probabilities, and that's evidence regarding the scribe. Think about the scribe that was actually copying this manuscript. Um, so as I look at the words in this reading, again, forget the manuscript, just the words on the page, you want to prefer the shorter reading. Why is that? Scribes are more likely to add and elaborate as a copy than they are to take away. Uh, for instance, here we have um, this passage, I actually forget where it's from, but that fiery line where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Man, this scribe, he liked that. Oh, that's, that's good. That's good. So at the end of every verse, he put it in there. Ooh, <laughs> keep repeating that. Whereas more reliable manuscripts discovered later, it's just right there at the very end. So scribes will add more often than they'll take away, if that makes sense. Um, prefer the more difficult reading. This one's even more easier to, to get behind. You know in John 5, where this, this guy is waiting by the pool to be healed, like, What's that got to do with anything? Well, some manuscripts later add in this, this passage and explain, well, they believe that you know, the, the waters would get stirred. If you were the first one in, boom, you get healed. Oh, now the reader understands. So the scribe wanted to help the reader know what this passage meant. You know, so he did the Amplified Bible and just inserted the explanation, right? But guess what? Is that really part of the original, or was that a later scribal clarification? So those are kind of questions. Um, prefer the less harmonious reading because scribes were all about combining the text and making it more uniform. That's their tendency. So you would go with the text that is opposite of that tendency. That does not include the harmonization. 
Um, then you've got, let's see what else. Um, okay, we'll do this for a second here. All right, then the last portion of internal evidence is considering um, inscriptional probabilities. So it's transcriptional prob uh, probabilities which relate to the scribe. Then there's, in uh, wait, there's inscriptional probabilities which relate to the original author. Now this is much more subjective, but you go back to what is the original author's writing style and does this variant reading fit with that? You know, John is the biblical author that has the most distinct writing style. You know what I mean? Uh, you read in English, you're like, this is John, you know. Uh, apparently, if you know Koine Greek, you know his vocabulary. Uh, apparently, it's a, it's a limited, simpler vocabulary. I think with the, the story of the adulterous woman, I forget, I haven't done my research in a while. I think it said that there's a lot of words in the Koine Greek in that, in that story that John doesn't use anywhere else. Now, that's not a slam dunk, but then you say, hmm, it would be weird for John to put this story in this passage, it kind of doesn't fit. It feels a little bit out of place. And then he's using vocabulary he hasn't used anywhere else. These are the kind of evidences that come into your mind as you weigh, mm, was this most likely original or not? Make sense? Okay. So, again, this is just an idea of what this process is going to look like. But take a look here at Acts 837. You brought this up a bunch. This verse here, should, does that belong? Well, if you look at the external evidence, and you guys can't read this, I can't read it either, it's got handwriting. Uh, <laughs> these are my cute little charts I made like years ago. Uh, I need to update these. So on the left, I've got the omission. On the right, I've got the inclusion. And I didn't bother to include all the different versions of the inclusion. I just put all of the inclusions as one just to simplify things. But on the left, you got P45 from the 3rd century, P74 from the was it, 7th century, You've got Sinaiticus uh, from the 4th, Alexandrinus from the 5th, uh, Vaticanus from the 4th, uh, I think it's Ephraim, I forget, then you have some others. So that's a lot of the absolute most reliable and oldest manuscripts, including Pyri, always evidencing a, an omission of that verse. But we're not done. Then you've got translations. You've got the Byzantine texts that have it. Lectionaries don't have it, the Vulgate, Syriac, Coptic, Ethiopic, and you have to look at specifically which version of the translation to figure out what, when that version came from, which I think I did here. Uh, this is, I think, third and fourth century, this Coptic translation. You've got two quotes from fathers. I forget when they lived. I, I will put that there. So kind of conclusions. So the earliest support of the omission is third century, and amongst translations and other versions, the earliest uh, representation of the omission is third century. Now, what about the inclusion? You've got three minuscules that date from the 11th, 14th, and the 11th century. So all the Greek manuscripts that have it, only three, and they're all 11th century and later. You've got some translations. So, you, so we've got 5th century representation in translations of the text. Okay, that's a little bit stronger than that is. Then you've got some quotations from the fathers, which is probably weaker than the translations. Based on the external evidence of which manuscripts and the, and, and the quality and character of those manuscripts, which do you trust more? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty lopsided in support of the omission, right? But then you move on to internal evidence, prefer the shorter reading. 
right? Or prefer the more prefer the more difficult reading or the less har harmonious reading. It sounds a little bit too convenient. You know, this sounds kind of like, let me put this nice convenient verse here that fits this doctrinal thing that I want to say that he confessed, believes in Christ, he confesses, and has this nice little package, you know, plan of salvation all here in one little thing, boom, there you go. It seems a little bit on the convenient side to have that verse in there as opposed to not being there. It's a little bit less confused, a little bit more confusing, shorter, so forth. In terms of author style of the theology, I mean, you look at Luke's writing, is that the kind of commentary you would add there or not? Very subjective, but kind of consider those things. So again, a very substantial variation, very limited research. Like, eh, I feel like we can trust what modern scholars, the conclusions modern scholars have come to regarding that version. That makes sense. So it's not, it's not rocket science yet. All right, let me see if I can wrap up here. Uh, okay, last chart. This is pretty important. This is going to help us understand a lot of the variants that we are more familiar with. So our English, um, okay, so the originals would have been written 50 to 100 AD, right? Now, King James Version was the standard English, the popularized English, the traditional English text that we are used to is coming from the King James. So you read King James, New King James. It's going to have Acts 837, 1 John about the Father, Son, and the Spirit, a lot of these harmonizations, that's in the King James Version, New King James Version. That's the English Bible that we grew up with that we're more familiar with, right? Trouble is that this English translation was based on the Textus Receptus. Now, Textus Receptus, that's a, it's a very important uh, item in this whole discussion. The Textus Receptus is when this guy, oh my God, I forgot his name now. Uh, he sat down and he was commissioned to make the standardized Greek text, the Textus Receptus, right? This will be the official Greek Bible. So in 1516, he made the standard Greek Bible from which all translations would then be made. But he made his standard Greek Bible based off of manuscripts from the 12th to the 15th century, all based off of, the, off of minuscules. These are very very young manuscripts. So our standard English was based off of, you know, by relative to what we have now, pretty late uh, New Testament manuscripts. But then in the 1800s up into the 1950s and still to today, we're actually discovering a lot more ancient biblical manuscripts that we did not have previously. That's so what happens. So you've got modern translations like the NASB or the NIV or the ESV. And what are they basing? What's the text base that is, that, uh, from which they are making their translations? Back to the more ancient manuscripts. Are there any differences and variations between these manuscripts in this time and these manuscripts in this time? Yeah. So Acts 837 it's more supported by these manuscripts. All of these manuscripts before that, every single Greek manuscript before that does not have it. So we're used to seeing it in our English Bibles, but it's actually a very weakly supported text. And so now we're very blessed to have much, much better resources. And so the ESV says, hmm, that just doesn't belong there. So if you read the ESV, it's just going to skip the verse entirely. So, and that's a lot of the variants that we're familiar with come from this uh, 
construct right here. Cool. All right, um, some books that are gonna help you. Uh, I'll put these back up in a second um, when, when we come back, but I guess we'll take our break now, right? Okay, uh, one says, uh, I didn't get to put these in good order, so we'll see. Uh, so one says, uh, why was Easter used for Passover in the King James? Great question. Uh, it's not a good answer to that. It just did. Uh, that is a translation issue, not a transmission issue. Uh, there's not any reliable text that says Easter in the original Greek. I don't know if Easter is a word in Greek or not, I'm not sure. Um, but that was a choice. You take the Greek manuscripts and then you put in this other word as a poor translation choice rather than anything from the actual text base. So that helps. Uh, one, this question here mentions um, the Latin Vulgate, which is uh, very uh, important, critical in the um, Catholic Church and in their liturgy. Um, what, and basically, what do I have to say about the Latin Vulgate? Great question. I don't have a good answer to that. I don't know too much about the Latin Vulgate. And that's kind of the point here. Each one of these things deserves a lot of good attention. It'd be really good to go back and learn, study about the Latin Vulgate itself and figure out, so what about this translation? You know, how does it read? Does it have any special readings that are different in some ways or, um, you know, how reliable is the text and so forth? Um, every different document has its own story. Um, and you can do a whole podcast episode on all of these things. So I don't have a lot of uh, good information on the Latin Vulgate. I can't even tell you right now, on top of my head. Um, you know, what year that was even written. Um, but the Latin Vulgate is referenced a lot when you are doing textual criticism because it's one of the major ancient translations. Um, at the end of the day, I don't think it's going to be super critical because I imagine this translation that's pretty close to what you're going to find most English translations and also most of the uh, original Greek documents. This question says, you got the NASB, ESV, NIV, all different readings. Why are they so different if they're all based on the same older manuscripts? Again, this is going to be primarily not text-based, but translation choice. The NASB and ESV and NIV have all different translation philosophies. They're approaching translation in a different way. NASB is, and ESV are both trying to be conservative, literal translations, but the NASB is a little bit more stuffy and sticking a little bit more rigidly to the Greek text, which is why it's awkward to read. Greek syntax is all over the place, so you've got this weird English word order that doesn't read very well. And that's just the nature of the NASB translation, whereas ESV um, tries to maintain the accuracy of the original, but take more liberty in the pre presentation of it, making a more, not a more modern English read, but a more fluid English read without sacrificing uh, authenticity. But then you're going to have specific translation choices on interesting text-based places. Uh, if you go to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, he should um, not control, whatever, his own vessel. I think some, do some ESVs say wife there? Am I, am I crazy? Anyways, but there's, there's a different rendering of that. That's it's one Greek word. We agree on the Greek word because that's what that's originally said. But then how do you render that Greek word? They make some very dramatically different translation choices. But then there are some cases in which there's 
the difference in the text base, which vary in reading, and they might make their own scholarly choices about those. Uh, and in NIV, though, its philosophy is to be more accessible. And so all the different, but basically all the differences in the NIV primarily based upon different tr translation philosophy. Most of their choices about the original text, the Greek, it's going to all be about the same, though. So hopefully that question was answered. Um, this um, question here, a particular Muslim cleric made a point that the two words only begotten and John 3.16 do not appear in a certain Bible. This gentleman was speaking to me before, and I forget who was there in person or as a YouTube thing or something, but there's a Muslim cleric. I think this is what was happening. And he's making a point, oh, this Bible doesn't include only begotten in John 3.16. And apparently he's making a big point about that. Um, and I can't represent him well, because I, I wasn't there, but that seems to be me what's going on. Um, but it maybe kind of serves as an example of the way people approach this topic. Uh, Muslims, as well as um, even Mormons, they say, well, you, you can't trust the Old and the New Testament. That's why you trust you know, the Book of Mormon or the Quran even more. They've just been corrupted. And so they'll agree with the things they agree with, and then they'll dismiss the things they don't because, well, you can't trust the text. And so you can't trust the text. So here's this one Bible that doesn't have only begotten in it. Well, what Bible do you, do you have? Like, what translation is that? What was that translate? What, what text base did it come from? Really, the issue is what manuscript doesn't have those two words? And what's significant about that manuscript? So people kind of throw out stuff. Oh, man. But there's like, that doesn't make any sense. There's, there's not really anything to support this. Just got to be aware of people making those kinds of points. Um, Two questions here. Uh, one is if there's some things in the Bible you don't understand, how do you find out? How should you study the Bible if you don't know for sure which translation is correct? So good questions. Um, and actually maybe related to that, uh, with so many variants, intentional or not, can you help, under help us understand how God's word is perfect? So, again, th this is something I learned from John Weaver recently. He was making the point. That you've got the Greek Septuagint, which differs from the uh, in the Old Testament from the Hebrew Masoretic text. And when the New Testament apostles were writing their documents, they would quote Septuagint version as much or even really more than the Masoretic. And they would use the wording of the Greek Septuagint in favor to support some of their the points they were making about Christ and his coming and so forth. And so John says, well, it's not that the Septuagint isn't inspired. Translation. It's a natural translation that humans made, but inspired people were still able to use that wording in a way that supports God's eternal truth. And there's some kind of balance in you know the specificity of God's exact truth, but that's able to be communicated in bigger ways. You know what I mean? Like every word matters, but your faith does not hinge upon. One word here or one word there. The deity of Christ, that's a big issue. I spent an entire quarter looking at all of the Bible in this whole support of this challenging concept of Christ being both man and, and deity and Yahweh himself. It's, it's not one verse or one word that supports or refutes that. What's the overall presentation and picture that the Bible is giving us? That's why you can look at it. If I'm going to say there's a bad translation, I'll say, okay, New King James, not a great translation. And I mean, 
not great translation. But you know what? None of them were like our great, great, great. None of them were perfect translations. And yet, which one will I use? I'll use all of them. Because even though they're not great translations, there are good translations, there are sufficient translations, and the collection of all the scholarly choices and decisions come into our full understanding of what is the overall truth that God is presenting to us. And so I think we can realize God communicates his message to us in these human ways that we as humans can interact with, and we can come away with not this nitpicky, detailed thing, not that we shouldn't study in that way, because I do that. But really more important is this is the truth that God is overwhelming us with. So there's some balance in there. I don't know if that made sense. Then don't tell me. Uh, or, you can just, or you can ask me again later. I don't know. But that, that, uh, that's just kind of something I've been, I've been seeing a lot as we go through the text. We should see things uh, bigger and broader and not just a single proof text kind of deal. Um, but also, man, multiple translations are great ways to study the text. Because different, and even if you get these loosey-goosey interpretive translations that are not not, not the best resources, but you know what a loose translation is, or a, a very interpretive translation, that is the text and the commentary combined in one. So you read a weird thing. Man, what's he even talking about? You read five uh, interpretive <coughs> translations, and you have five scholars telling you what they think that means, which is a lot faster than reading three paragraphs in the commentary, and you still don't know what he's talking about. Uh, so they become very useful resources. Again, big picture, what's, what's the, the message God's giving us? So hopefully that's a little bit helpful. Um, and there's a question here about Matthew 16, 19, but that might actually get kind of included in our lesson we're about to start here. So I might want to uh, just get going with that. We're going to talk, talk about the canon here in a second. Before we do, uh, some last resources I'm going to share with you. Um, this is a very good book, uh, just the basic history of the, of the biblical text and practice of textual criticism. It's a pretty easy read. That was my first read. You read that, you're going to come away understanding a good bit of things. Uh, this is the more complicated and heavy read. Uh, that's what you can kind of upgrade to after you do the first. This book is fantastic. Uh, this is textual criticism. It's basically the rules and practice of textual criticism. This is less than 100 pages. Super easy read. And you're like, oh, okay, I got it. Because the truth is, a lot of textual criticism, the rules of textual criticism are very simple. It's, it's the getting familiar with all the evidence. That's the hard part. But then even weighing the evidence based on these rules is, again, time-consuming, but it's not like it's, you know, doing plumbing in your house. We're sticking to sheetrock and things like that. <laughs> uh, and then, oh, and then you can get this. Um, this is you can read somebody else's commentary on why they think the original reading is this or is that. So you can, why is this verse not here? You go to Acts 8.37, look it up in this, and he'll tell you why he thinks this or that. Um, so you're kind of jumping to the to the chase there, uh, rather than doing the effort on your own. Um, so, but it can be a good resource too. All right. We hope this lesson was helpful to you. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or review so we can reach more people. If you'd like to study the Bible with us, please reach out, 717-585-0949. You can email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies and worship, check out CapitalCityChristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.